0: The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston.
1: Okay, let us pray. Gracious God, as we hear your scripture read, open our hearts and our minds to see what it is calling us to do this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Listen now for God's word to you as it is found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. At this sound, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. At this time, we say to our children as they head downstairs for their time of worship, may God be with you there. Amen. I see people taking handfuls of petals with them. As they depart, I want to say thank you to everybody who wore red today but I think the prize this morning has got to go to Fred Cannon, who managed not only a red jacket, but a red tie, and it looks like a red shirt. I haven't seen his pants. What color are they, Mary Rose? White, okay, all right. (laughs) Here at FAPC, I have a tradition each year before I depart for study leave, I write a sermon entitled, The View From Here. Amanda Miola was giving me a hard time because she remembered the very first time I preached a sermon with that title, which was um, my very first sermon um, uh, in this, this place. That's why I'm on uh, number 12, even though I've been here 11 years. My first sermon here and then at the end of the first year, second year, so on and so forth. So we're on number 12. This practice has its roots in an invitation that Joyce Hansen, one of the co-chairs of the search committee that called me, issued to me during my first time walking into this sanctuary. We, We came in through that door there and Joyce said, Scott, why don't you stand in the pulpit? and I did, and standing here, I was surprised to discover that this pulpit, unlike many pulpits in this country, this pulpit puts a bustling street scene right smack in the center of the preacher's view. So my very first comment from this pulpit was the profound theological observation, hey, you can see the Disney store from here. (laughs) Now Mickey has long since departed, And then Ralph Lauren was our neighbor until a couple of years ago, and now the the property across the street, I can see the big ad right now, is sitting empty, awaiting a tenant who will take on its incredibly hefty lease. The cityscape outside of our front doors is constantly changing, and personally, I find this exhilarating. To stand here is to see movement. Hot dog carts and taxis and police cars wheel by, parades and protests march by, busy people, dejected people, curious people, skeptical people, all sorts of people walk by here all day long in a steady stream. Looking out those clear glass doors over the last 11 years, has given me a heart for Gotham. Every day I come to work here praying that this church will be an oasis, a place where diverse passers-by can find rest for their soul and a map for their journey. And that, I suppose, is why we are all here. Every week we step back from the pressures of work and school and life from the drama of New York and walk into this house, God's house, to sing and pray and ask, what does the world look like? What do our lives look like? What is the view that we get right now from here? Today, I would like to split this rather broad question into three smaller inquiries. What do we see happening in the world outside those clear glass doors? What do we see happening inside these walls, inside this church? And finally, given these two perspectives on this Pentecost Sunday, what do I think God's Spirit is calling us to do? Part one Outside the Glass. According to numerous journalists, one of the most significant things happening in the contemporary world is a rise in political populism. In recent years, more and more pundits have described elections here in the United States and across the globe as being influenced or won by populist candidates. What do they mean? What exactly is a populist political movement? This morning I want to spend a few minutes exploring this question largely because I think this subject is critical to understanding this moment in history and to following our calling as the Church of Jesus Christ. Populism, as most journalists are quick to point out, is not a political agenda. It's not an ideology at all. Think of all the different people on the world's political stage in recent years who have been described as populists. In Great Britain, right-wing politician and Brexit supporter Nigel Farage is a populist. In Venezuela, socialist, Hugo Chavez was called a populist. Religious conservative Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey is frequently called a populist. In this country, both Senator Bernie Sanders, Democrat, and President Donald Trump, Republican, are described as populists. With such a wide variety of people and political perspectives being labeled populist, some, including New York Times columnist Roger Cohen, suggest that the word populism, and I quote, has become sloppy to the point of meaninglessness. It's an overused epithet for multiple manifestations of political anger. Now, Cohen may be right, but I have to say, long before populism became a handy one-word explanation for surprising and sometimes unsettling political developments. Populism was actually being studied in a fairly serious way. In 2004, a Dutch political scientist named Cass Mudd authored what many consider to be the foundational statement on the subject. His, his thin book, bears the approachable title, Populism, a Very Short Introduction. In this small but wonky treatise, Mudd argues that populism is not an ideology, but a description of a political strategy. Populists, Mudd writes, divide society into two groups, who they set at odds with each other. The two groups are usually the pure people and the corrupt elite. Let me use two fairly recent and local examples to illustrate how this works. Example number one. The Occupy Wall Street movement, founded in the aftermath of the financial collapse of 2008, is generally described as a populist movement. Their famous slogan was, we are the 99%. You remember that. Occupy Wall Street set up the classic division that Mudd describes. Here, the pure people are the 99% and the corrupt elite are the top 1% of wealthiest Americans who, according to Wall Street occupy Wall Street, control a disproportionate amount of the capital in this country and who use their influence to keep wealth, power, and privilege away from the other 99 percent. Example number two. The election of Donald Trump as President of the United States in 2016 is described by many as the outcome of a populist campaign. Consider these words from President Trump's inaugural address. Quote, we are transferring power from Washington DC and giving it back to you, the people. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of this country. In this speech, the pure are identified as common citizens who have been ignored by a corrupt political establishment that has done nothing to alleviate their problems or raise their standard of living. I use these two very different examples to try and make a fairly simple point. Populism can attach itself to almost any sort of ideology. Left, right, centrist, religious, secular, the basic strategy of the populist is the same. All that really changes in one manifestation of populism to the next is who gets labeled as good citizens and who is identified as being corrupt. Critics of populism find this dynamic both effective and unsettling. It works, but it hurts. It goes like this. At first, we tend to judge populist movements as we see them based on our assessment of society's problems. If you are persuaded that the wealthy 1% are the problem, it's quite likely that you will give Occupy Wall Street a thumbs up. If you are persuaded in this country that immigrants are the problem, it's quite likely that you'll give the Trump administration a thumbs up. The worrisome thing here, says Mudd, is that when we assess populist movements based on whether or not they've made the right call, based on whether or not they've made the right choice as to who is good and who is corrupt, we've already drunk the Kool-Aid. We've bought into the underlying strategy that fuels populism, and it goes like this. Populism thrives on conflict, inter-societal conflict. It works because it aims aspects of society each other. And in this, some argue, populism exposes a flaw in democracy. For all our egalitarian hopefulness, we can be easily manipulated by those who would turn our frustrated energies against each other. All of this is to say populist political movements excel at sowing the seeds of anger. Now anger, and you know this, anger is a tricky thing. I'm not going to stand in this pulpit and tell you that all anger is bad. I, I believe in righteous anger, anger that is faithful in its motives and sacred in working out of a place of fury. But as people of faith, we also have to acknowledge that our spiritual tradition cautions us in regard to anger as well, and that puts us in a dilemma. How do we know when anger is an appropriate response? How do we know when anger is misguided or misplaced? How do we know when anger is a tantrum thrown by a bruised ego, and how do we know when anger comes from a legitimate appraisal of circumstances in which we, or, or those that we care about, have been wronged. Why is, it, why is it that our own anger always feels justified, while others' anger so often seems to us overblown and quite possibly frightening? I want to tell you two very quick stories that I've thought a lot about in recent months related to these questions. Story one. In 2016, as we were approaching the presidential election, I spoke with people in this congregation and beyond who told me that in middle America, so-called flyover country, there were a lot of people who were frustrated with the elites in Washington. These people were angry. Specifically, I was told repeatedly that there was a lot of anger in white working class, rust belt America. Some who told me these stories sympathized with these people's anger. And others seemed scared by it. Okay, hold that one in your head. Story number two. In 2018 and 2019, this church hosted Dr. Cleo LaRue and Dr. Paul Roberts, respectively, on Martin Luther King Sunday as our guest preachers. I've known and respected both of these men for a long time, decades. I've heard them preach on many occasions and in many different contexts. Black churches, white churches, mixed churches, Uh, academic settings, so I'm going to ask you to trust me when I say the MLK sermons offered here in the past two years represent the most clearly frustrated indictments of government policy I've ever heard from those two pastors. And, And after the sermon, some of you remarked to me on this, I've never heard Dr. LaRue so angry. Some of you told me that you sympathized with our MLK preachers. Others seemed unnerved by their anger. Both of these situations, listening to you assess white working-class anger and African-American preachers' anger, have stuck to my heart. Why? Because this has become a daily task for us. Basically, we're all constantly trying to figure out when anger is true and legitimate and righteous and when it is not. In this pugilistic time, we are forever trying to decide when we should ignore someone's anger, when someone's anger might pose a threat to us, and when we ought to be motivated by people's anger into taking action into working for change. And and as we think about how to respond to all of this anger, I know that we don't want to be naive. You don't want to be manipulated, and you don't want to be hard-hearted. Making healthy, sane decisions about anger, our own anger, and the anger of our neighbors is important work. It's, It's spiritual work, and that means it's difficult work at this moment in history. As I come to the conclusion of part one, Outside the Glass, I want you to know, I'm not a pessimist. I, I feel, in my heart, optimistic about this country and its ability to move forward in a healthy way. But at the same time, I have to be honest with you. We are facing some pretty big challenges as As a country. And when I look out those clear glass doors, I see a lot of anger. And I also see forces trying to use people's anger to harness people's anger in not so righteous ways. As those seeking to be disciples of Jesus Christ, I think the divisive dynamics of populism are raising. A crucial question for our time, maybe the crucial question for our time. And it's this What do we do with all this anger? How do we assess it? How do we know when it's manipulating us, when it's a base political tactic? And how do we know when it's a righteous call to action? When and how should we be motivated by anger? Part two, inside the glass. So what's the view that we get from inside the sanctuary? The first thing I should say is that the view from here is good. It's encouraging. Where we really are a diverse community and we are focused on Christ's ministry we are busy teaching children the faith. We, we busy ourselves housing the homeless. We busy ourselves trying to orient our lives and our actions in moral ways. We, we busy ourselves expressing the beauty of God's creation and the wonders of God's love through the arts. We are doing our best to be a faithful community that shares the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. I'm so proud of this congregation every day. I've been standing in this pulpit for 11 years and I have to say I'm humbled by what I see here, by what I witness here. I love this church. It's also true that sometimes the anger that we witness out there finds its way inside these doors. We carry our frustration and our pain into this space. And maybe, if you'll permit me a few caveats, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Let me explain. In many ways, our society cautions us in regard to anger. Anger, we're told from a young age, can be dangerous, both physically and spiritually, and this is the sort of warning that looms large in a quotation from one of America's great gurus, Yoda. In the Star Wars movie, The Phantom Menace, Yoda opines, don't worry, I'm not going to do the voice. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. Basically, Yoda sees fear, anger, and hate, as an unhealthy triad waiting to snare humanity. And I see his point. There's wisdom here. But foolish preacher that I am, I want to take issue with the little green man, and my quarrel with the Jedi Master goes like this. Yes, anger can lead to hate, but anger can lead you other places too. Anger is a fork in the road. And some of the paths that you can take forward from anger are actually positive. Jennifer Lerner, psychologist at Harvard University, has studied the biological changes that people undergo when they are angry. It's true, Dr. Lerner says, people's heart rate and blood pressure do increase when they're angry. But does this mean that anger is harming us? Not necessarily, she says. In fact, when we become angry, levels of the stress hormone cortisol actually drop in our bloodstream. In other words, Lerner suggests, manifesting anger can actually start to calm us down. It can prepare us physically and emotionally to address problems and not to run from them. I see this sort of thing happening here. Yes, there are times when people bring anger into this building that's little more than unfocused, self-serving fury. And I've witnessed anger in this place that rises out of bigotry and prejudice. At moments like this, Yoda looks like a wise old prophet. But there are other times, and I would say more often than not in this place When people express anger over something in their lives or in the world as a way to look for a healthy next step, their frustration motivates them to look for ways to engage problems in a constructive manner. This past Friday, here at church, a number of clergy and officers were upstairs on the sixth floor talking about outreach initiatives for the coming year. As we talked about our multi-pronged efforts with and on behalf of refugees, one member of the committee mentioned the decision handed down last week by the Federal Office of Refugee Resettlement that cut funding for programs supporting unaccompanied refugee children. Specifically, last week, the government denied any further funding for recreational programs like outdoor play, or educational programs like English tutoring for migrant children in US custody. This decision prompted expressions of deep frustration. Now, while the current debates around immigration are complicated, and there are many who share responsibility for the state of affairs in which we find ourselves, this latest action strikes me as unconscionable. It heaps punishment on children who, to quote the head of Catholic Charities, have already been to hell and back. I don't know about you, but a little righteous anger on behalf of these kids on Friday afternoon seemed justified. Surely our Lord wants us to get passionate over the fate of these kids. So we were at a fork in the road. What road did our anger take us down? Well, on Friday at our meeting, in typical, staid, Presbyterian fashion, we rolled up our sleeves and began discussing the possibility of supporting the Jewish Child Care Organization, JCCO, an organization that currently cares for 30 of these children up in the Bronx. We discussed helping the kids by br- bridging the gap that this decision created in the JCCO's funding. So there, Yoda, anger channeled by the force, I mean the spirit, (laughs) can actually lead us to reach out in love. Sometimes a little rage can push us toward a good action. It can connect us with, with other passionate saints. It can tap us into, tie us into God's mission in this world because you know, you know, you know that God cares about those kids. After the meeting, I sent the Reverend Kate Dunn a simple email. Good meeting, good people. I tell you all this because it's the view that I get day after day, inside these walls, from inside these glass doors, week in and week out. And it's a good one. End of part two. Part three, so in the midst of these contentious times, with righteous anger and not so righteous anger swirling all about us, what is God's Spirit calling us to do? Well. I think, at its most basic level, the Spirit is calling us to be church. (laughs) And now, church, my friends, in case you haven't figured it out yet, is kind of a funny thing. (laughs) This past week, I received a letter from a man in St. Paul, Minnesota, expressing concern for this congregation I suspect, giving the letter's generic salutation, that this correspondent is concerned about congregations all over this wide country, but the letter came uh, to me, and it was an appeal to me and to all of you, so I figured I better tell you about it. It was an appeal that we change our weekly worship services from Sundays to Saturdays. Now, today, in the face of the navigational challenges presented by the Puerto Rican Day Parade, you may conclude that this is one wise fellow. (laughs) But I should tell you more. The letter indicated that God is waiting for churches to realize that the true Sabbath, the true day of worship for Christians is Saturday, the seventh day of the week, and not Sunday, the traditional first day of the week. If we were all just to make this change, the letter argued, God would be pleased. If, if we were to simply shift our singing and praying and preaching and fellowshipping from Sunday to Saturday, vast world problems would be solved and the earth would become a better place. Reading the letter, I have to tell you, I found the author's appeal to be sort of cute. And and I don't intend that in a mean-spirited way. Reading his proposal, I thought, buddy, I wish it were this simple. I really do. I wish everything that's wrong with us and messed up in the world could be remedied by shifting our calendar around by one day. But of course, I don't think it works that way, and neither, I suspect, does God. God calls the church to dive headfirst into a complicated world, and that, my friends, is the message of Pentecost. On this day, Scripture tells us, the followers of Jesus gathered in an apartment in Jerusalem. They were trying to figure out what to do with themselves. They were, they were probably debating important church stuff. You know, should we use pita bread or challah for communion? Should we, should we wear white robes or black robes when preaching? Should, should we worship on Saturday or, or on Sunday? Sacred stuff like that. And, and then the Spirit of God shows up, and it rattles the shutters. It it sets curls of fire dancing on people's brows. It it tips men and women who love Jesus out of their comfort zone. It it spills them out into the streets of a great metropolis, and there the Spirit empowers the faithful. It endows them with the ability to wrap their tongues around every language under the sun. It, It enables the disciples to speak using the people's words, their, their own turns of phrase, their accents. It, it encourages women and men of faith to meet folk where they are at, to connect with people on their home turf, and once there, to tell them the good news of God. This past week, I was sitting in a cafe down near Union Square waiting for my daughter Izzy to finish her first behind-the-wheel driving lesson. Lessons are a, yeah, thank you for chuckling. (laughs) The lessons are a long overdue, a year and a half overdue Christmas gift, although really, honestly, they're my attempt to preserve the good relationship that I have with my firstborn child because as my wife will surely tell you, the sort of supernatural calm it takes to be a driving instructor in New York City is not among my spiritual gifts. <laughs> so I was sitting in this cafe, waiting for the lesson to end, relaxed, at a seat by the window, and I was watching New York go by. It's a little after five o'clock and people were heading home from work. Mostly they seemed content, A lot were walking in twos and threes and fours, strolling with other people they seemed to be enjoying. There were individuals of every skin color and hair color and visible piercing you can imagine. There were people of every age. There were couples of every gender combination walking hand in hand. There were moms with their arms around their daughter's shoulders. There there was a pair of jocks spinning a basketball and laughing. There was an old man who paused every few steps and bowed his head. I think he was mouthing a prayer. For 20 minutes, I watched as this this stream of humanity flowed steadily by. And I thought about something. I thought, you know, if you would have plunked me down, as a 17-year-old me from small-town Minnesota, if you would have plunked me down at that cafe, I would have found the diversity bewildering and probably sort of scary. Heck, I've been here in New York 11 years, and I I still find it sort of bewildering, but but not scary. I actually find the diversity of this city to be holy. And, And I can chalk my changed perspective up to Pentecost. Pentecost acts, asks us to see diversity not as something frightening and not as something to leverage. Instead, the Spirit of God invites the faithful to engage the incredibly beautiful and varied forms that humanity takes. It, it prods us to speak the powerful deeds of God in every language that there is. And this, Pentecost assures us, is the sort of thing that really will change the world. Now, does that sound naive, a bit too simple? Is this my version of everything would just be perfect if we would all worship on Saturday? (laughs) Maybe. But I don't think so. Pentecost with its fanciful rose petals falling from the sky has a steel backbone. It has to because it stands against the forces in the world that would divide us. It it stands in contrast to powers that, that seek to ratchet up people's anger, powers that encourage us to focus our rage on our neighbors. And in this, Pentecost invites all of us to see in a new way. It challenges us to look on the world's remarkable diversity with all its challenges and hardships and possibilities and to say, these are all God's beloved children. In this place and in this time, this, I think, is the perspective that empowers us. As we sing and pray, as we study and serve, as we look together at those clear glass doors back there, that is the view that we get from here. The final stanza, the final line of that hymn, Here's My Heart, O Take and Seal It, is the seal, that's, it's, in, it's in Latin, but it's in Calvin's seal in Geneva. Here's my heart. I offer it to you. And I don't think there's any more kind of base expectation that God would like from us but to say, here's my heart. And so as you go forth from this place today to be in that angry word, world out there, May you go forth having offered your heart to God and interacting with people in a way that is in accordance with that. Go forth trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift followed by the word sermons to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.